In 2013, Grace was diagnosed with cancer. I'm sure many of you remember that. Some of you may recall that the year before that, I had my own possible cancer scare that came up. And you know, when there was potential that I would have cancer, that didn't bother me that much. It, it didn't really affect me. I, I figured it's in God's hands. I'm willing to leave my life in God's hands. That was okay. Of course, it turned out that it wasn't anything. That probably helped as well when you get past it quickly. But, but I have to say, Grace's cancer was a much more challenging time for me. She's my wife. She's the one that I want to take care of. I wanted to do something. I wanted to fix things. But there was nothing that I could do. I had no control at all over what would happen in her life. There was nothing I could do to change her situation. I couldn't take away her fears. I couldn't take away her pain. All I could do is pray. And for months, I had no idea if my prayer would serve any purpose or not, if it would help or not. I'd watch her go through the surgery. I watched her endure radiation. And I had no idea what the outcome of my prayers might be. It was a very helpless feeling. I'm sure many of you can relate. I'm not alone in this. You too have faced times in your lives where you have no idea if God is responding to your prayers or not. As we'll see this morning, we are not unique. Even if you respond and, and can resonate with my problem, we're not unique. We're continuing our series through the, the third book of the Psalter. So far in this series, we've been looking at a collection of psalms from uh, a man named Asaph. They're somehow connected to him. Uh, he was a musical leader in Israel. He's connected to the worship in Jerusalem. In, in fact, we, we may recognize from, from these psalms that most of the psalms we've been looking at are not happy psalms. They're psalms that deal with struggle. And yet here's a musical leader of worship that's leading the people to sing unhappy song, psalms. Actually, unhappy songs, because that's what the psalms are. That tells us, you know, we don't have to come to worship happy every day. We worship because we have a great God. We're in these psalms here, and this psalm, again, is connected to Asaph. And whereas most of the... the previous psalms we've been looking at, the, the recent ones, they've dealt with things like God vindicating his people, God bringing justice to the enemies of, of God's people, God delivering God's people from those who hate them. This psalm this morning handles a different issue. It it's, handles the issue of a personal crisis. Our psalmist faces some sort of personal crisis, but he never indicates what that may be. All we know is that he is suffering. In the first part of the psalm, in the first part, the psalmist focuses on the, the emotional turbulence. That's what I'm calling it, emotional turbulence. Again, that's something I'm sure that, that we all experience. We have some experience, even those who pride ourselves on, on not having a whole lot of emotions recognize what it means. One of the Harry Potter movies that we watched with our kids uh, several years ago, it had uh, a girl say to a boy at one point in the movie, you have the emotional range of a teaspoon. My wife said, that's a perfect demonstration of you. That, that's the line for you. Yeah, yeah, even with my emotional range, I understand emotional turmoil. There, there's been too many nights that I've spent staring at the ceiling when I should be sleeping to, to try to 
say I no longer have emotions. In fact, there's times I find myself in turmoil. I'm sure you're the same. What is significant about the situation that our psalmist experiences is that this emotional turmoil that he's struggling with, this turbulence that he hits, it doesn't arrive directly from his situation. His emotional turbulence comes from something other than that. Pain comes from the situation, but, but the emotions arise from a secondary issue, something that the pain leads to. His emotional turbulence comes because it seems that God is ignoring me. Notice, I, I put it in the first person. Not God is ignoring him. God is ignoring me. I, I want us to see ourselves in the emotions of the psalm this morning. Not just to look at what's happening to some psalmist far in the past. I want us to see us. Sure, he writes about his crisis experience, but his crisis experience is ancient history. Let's talk about what happens to you and I when, when life is crashing down on us. How do we feel when God is ignoring us? What kind of emotional turbulence do we encounter when God is ignoring me? Let's begin walking through our psalm by, by reading the first three verses. Psalm 77 this morning. My voice rises to God and I will cry out. My voice rises to God and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble I sought the Lord. In the day, in the night my hand was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. When I remember God, then I am disturbed. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. Let's personalize these verses that we just read. I have cried out to God in my crisis. That's how I would personalize this. Our psalmist's appeal is urgent. I have cried out to God in my crisis. It's emphatic here. Our psalmist says, my voice rises to God. Again, my, my voice rises to God. He's desperately wanting God to hear him. He wants God to hear this plea for help. In, in fact, the psalmist refuses to be comforted. According to verse 2, he, he won't stop until he is sure that God is listening. The initial verses indicate that this is not our, our psalmist's first experience with, with trial. It's not his first experience with pain. He's been here before. Crying out to God, that's something he's done in the past. He's simply repeating now what he's done before. The desperation may be stronger this time, but the, the process is all too familiar. Now, really, since our youngest children are up in their junior worship at this time, I expect that all of us are in a similar place. From teens and above, I expect that all of us can, can resonate with the psalmist. We've experienced pains and trials at some point in our lives. You know, the young kids may not quite gather that, but by the time you're a teenager and onward, there's been a point in your life where you've hit pain. You've hit trial. If we happen to be in a time of deep trials at this moment, 
This is not our first rodeo. We've been here before. We learn that life is filled with painful experience. And if we're believers in Jesus Christ, we also know that we are to take that pain to God. We are to call to God for help in times of trouble. In fact, let's be honest, even if we're not believers, we probably know that times of Tower Isles we call out to God. That's why when 9-11 happened, now I know that's become an ancient history, right? 2001 is long ago, but, but all of our politicians were on the, the steps of the Capitol building crying out to God in prayer. We see it when times of trial comes, when 2020, a virus hits our country. Again, people were calling out for prayer. The process is all too familiar. I have cried out to God in my crisis. That first step is very common. Too common from our perspective, I, I dare say, because we have so much pain. Yet the first step is not what causes the, the real emotional turmoil in our psalm. Sure, there, there's emotion that comes from painful experiences, but there, there can be fear, there can be worry, but the real turbulence that, that hits us with this psalm does not come from the, the, the painful aspects of the event. We hit emer, emotional turbulence in the next three verses. We hit emer, emotional turbulence when God's silence leaves me sleepless. God's silence leaves me sleepless. Verse 4, you have held my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I've considered the days of old, the, the years of long ago. I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart and my spirit ponders. This is when we hit real emotional turbulence. We hit at the same time the psalmist does here. When we cry out to God, and there's no apparent answer, all we hear back is silence. This is when we find ourselves laying awake at night, staring at the ceiling. If God is not there, what can we possibly do next? Is there something we can do to get God's attention that will help us? This is when our mind starts coming up with all the ideas, God, I will do this if you respond. I will do this if you respond. Notice our psalmist here, he attributes his sleepliness to God. You, God, kept my eyelids open. At this point, he says, I am so troubled that I cannot speak. If God is not responding to the cry for help, what can be done? To make matters worse, as he lays there night after night, he, he remembers there have been times when God, in his abundant kindness, has given him songs to sing in the night. His heart has soared with these joy-filled songs. But not now. Why not? Those past songs in the night now, they, they serve only to make the present distress seem that much more dark that much more stark. How can I sing songs of joy when I ache? Where is God? I love the fact that, that we do not have any details about what the psalmist is personally going through in his life. 
that, that allows me to, to mentally lay this psalm upon so many circumstances in my life. If the only point of connection I need is a time when it seems as if God is silent, then I can connect to all sorts of times in my life. I have plenty of experience that correspond to, to what the psalmist is talking about. Plenty of times where I felt pain, I felt distress, and I don't know if God is listening or not to my prayers for help. The same question keeps going over and over in my mind. Where are you, God? Where are you? Sure, lying awake at night... Remembering past times of joy, that, that should strengthen our faith, right? Glorious and happier times should bring comfort. Remembering God's deliverance should bring comfort. But our emotions don't always follow what should happen, do they? Emotions kind of run on their own path. Trying to sing a past wonders, trying to sing joy-filled songs when, when we ache, our emotions... Don't respond well to that. It brings agony rather than joy. This is where that real emotional turbulence comes in. But why? Why is God's silence so painful? We have experience with painful situations. We have cried out to God. We have dealt with emotional turmoil as apparent silence. We can relate I suspect at this point all of us can resonate with the first couple of sections in this poem. Where our experience may begin to deviate from our psalmist just a little bit is when we hit the next section. Yet this next step is critical. If we are going to find our way out of our emotional turmoil that is created by this personal crisis that, that God may be ignoring us, we need this next step. The next step, eventually I formulate my questions. Eventually I formulate my questions. We need to take our emotions, these emotions that are, are tearing us apart, we need to take those emotions and formulate specific questions that get to the heart of our fears and concerns surrounding God. Verse 7. Will the Lord reject forever? And will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has his answer with or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? Have you ever noticed how expressing something in words can clarify our thinking on the matter? One of my habits is that I manuscript my sermons. I have a manuscript right here with me. I manuscript my sermons each week. I spend time each week essentially writing out what I'm going to say because I find that helps me clarify my thoughts about the passage. It helps me think through how will I express it? How am I going to organize things to present what I want to say? It also keeps me from saying things I'll regret. Or at least... I hope it will do that. A couple weeks ago, I, sprayed, I strayed from my notes, and I actually said something that was incorrect. I, I said in my sermon, as I strayed from my notes, we are all high priests. And as soon as we start going home, Grace says, we're not all high priests. We have a high priest. She's right. We have one high priest, Christ. We're priests. We're not high priests. I shouldn't stray, stray from my notes. 
Hopefully, it also helps me not to waste time on things that don't matter. Overall, I, I believe that since you're willing to give me 45 minutes or so of your life, then yeah, I need to make sure that my thoughts give you what's most important and that you can understand my thoughts in those 45 minutes. Make them as useful as I can. Well, in the verses we just read, the psalmist is organizing his thoughts. He's clarifying what thoughts are generating the emotional turmoil that, that's caused him to have these sleepless nights. Thoughts he may not even have realized he, he had because they're instinctive, following the emotions. Follow his thinking. God is silent. It appears as if the as if God is ignoring his plight. That's, that's where he begins. But does that then mean that God's rejected him? If God is silent, does that mean that God's rejected him, that he's no longer God's child? In that case, how long last? Forever? If God rejects forever, well then that implies that God's covenant loyalty has come to an end. Many of you may be even suspected when we read verse 8 and you saw that word loving kindness, that this would be that Hebrew word hesed that we find over and over in the Old Testament, that Hebrew word that says God will, will act for the good of those with whom he has a covenant relationship. Well, if God is going to ignore the psalmist forever, then, then God's hesed has ceased. That means that all of God's promises connected to the covenant, those have ceased as well then at least from the psalmist's perspective, God is, is no longer gracious. In fact, God's anger has removed his compassion entirely from his interaction with the psalmist. Now, we should note that all of these ideas are expressed in questions here in verses 7 and 9. What we can't see is in the original, in the Hebrew, they're expressed in questions that anticipate a negative response. Will the Lord reject forever? No. These are rhetorical questions. Will he never be favorable again? No. And so on. Why can the psalmist anticipate this negative response throughout? Think about it. What he has done, he's taken the idea that his feelings were generated and he's followed those ideas to the logical conclusion and yet somewhere along the way, that logical change from his, his feelings to the conclusion, somewhere along that chain moved into the ridiculous. God cannot remove his hesed. It's impossible. It's part of the character of God. The psalmist is an Israelite. God made an eternal covenant with the nation. God certainly cannot fail to deliver on the promises he's made. There's no way that God can no longer be a gracious God. He cannot withdraw his compassion. These ideas run completely contrary to the character of God. The psalmist's emotions are logically leading him to an illogical conclusion. The illogical nature of his emotions become clear as he formulates his questions. This is a chain that cannot be. It violates the character of God. Friends, we need to take this step ourselves when we encounter emotional turbulence. 
eventually formulating my, my questions must be part of dealing with the emotions that, that come from the crisis. Time and again, our emotions try to carry us to ridiculous places. But we only see that when we formulate our emotions into precise questions. This is one of the things that I frequently do with people when they come for counsel. When, when people come in to me for counsel over some situation that has them tied up in an emotional knot of some kind, I, I begin to play the what-if game. What if your emotions are true? What if what they're asking you are true? I, I, I help them formulate their, their questions. I ask, what if what you're feeling is true? What does that imply about God? It really takes... It rarely takes us long to get to the point where it's obvious the emotions are leading to a conclusion about God that violates his character. And if our emotions are leading us to something that violates the character of God, our emotions are wrong. They're lying to us. They are telling us things that are untrue. No matter how strong they feel, no matter how great the turbulence is, they are lying I may feel that God is silent, but what is the truth? We've seen the emotional turmoil. God is ignoring me. But what is the truth? What I need at this point is what I will call the intellectual reset. The intellectual reset. Verse 10 is where we hit the hinge point of this psalm. Many psalms, especially psalms of lament, if you were in my lament class a year ago or so when we talked about the psalms of lament, they always have a hinge point, a point where things swing from what I feel to what I know. Here's the hinge point. The psalmist is pouring out his emotional pain to God, but he hits this hinge. This is how I feel, but this is what I know. What I know must take precedence over what I feel. My intellect must reign in my emotions. What I know must provide an intellectual reset against what I feel. What is the intellectual reset in this psalm? God is still God. It's that simple. doesn't matter what I feel. God is still God. My emotions have not changed that fact one bit. God is still God. We, we come to the hinge point in our, our turbulence here when we recognize that our emotions are taking us to ridiculous places in our mind. They're, they're taking us to where we cannot stand. So, then I can begin my emotional or my, my intellectual reset. Once I get to realizing my emotions have taken me to a ridiculous place, I can start my reset. And I do that by forcing myself to think about God. I force myself to think about God. That's what our psalmist does. Look at verse 10. Then I said, It is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. 
The Hebrew verse 10 is difficult to translate into English. If you compare the versions, you'll find different wording because it's hard to translate, but the idea is clear. The, the psalmist recognizes that his faith has been shaken be, because he's behaving as if God had changed. But that cannot be. God has been, is, and will be the same. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He starts to think back then. If God cannot change, think about all the mighty things God has done. Two, two interesting things happen in verses 11 and 12. One, the psalmist uses four synonyms there for God's powerful actions in the past. Deeds, wonders, works, I know our English, at least New American Standard, says deeds again, but it's really a fourth word in the Hebrew, another synonym uh, that is there. Four synonyms that all describe God's past powerful actions as a way of emphasizing there are so many things that God has done in the past, I can't even name them all. More significantly, a second thing that the psalmist does here in these two verses is that he shifts from I to you. From I to you. The first part of the psalm has been about I. It's been the look at me story. Whoa, look at me. I'm suffering. Poor old me. Look at me. But now there's a shift. I remember your wonders. I meditate on your work. I will muse on your deeds. From, from this point on, I no longer makes an appearance in the rest of the psalm. We shift from a look at me story to a Look at you story. It's about God. We move from that, look at me, to look at you. The psalmist takes his gaze off himself and he starts to gaze on God. In his mind's eye, he just looks at God. Thinking about all the things that God has done in the past. Friends, so often we we don't recognize that, that we've fallen into this look at me story. We, we fall in this look-at-me mindset. We, we simply wallow in our self-centered world and not even realizing that that's all we're doing. We're, look at me, look at poor old me. Look at my misery, look at my pain. We need to force ourselves. Force. That's a word that means exert intentional mental effort, right? Force ourselves to, to think about God instead of ourselves. We live in a look-at-you story. This is God's world. God is doing things. This is a look-at-you story. We just happen to be a character in it. It is not a look-at-me story. What are the things that God has done in the past? How are those deeds comparing to what we're dealing with now? Look at what God has done. How does that compared to now. The intellectual reset begins as I force myself to think about God. Doing so will move me to the point that, secondly, I remember God's character. I remember God's character. Verse 13. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have, by your power, redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. 
Did you notice the absence of I? These verses are all about God. As the psalmist thinks about God's past deeds, he he cannot help but remember God's character. God is a holy God. That means that everything that God does is holy, including his interactions with his children. God does what will display his strength, not only to Israel, but to all the nations. He says peoples there in in verse 14, peoples, that means all the nations. God is not content till everyone sees how great he is, how holy he is, how marvelous he is. God has used his holy power to redeem his people. That is who God is. Nothing about this current crisis in the psalmist's life has changed the character of God. He remains the God who redeems his people, displaying his power before the nations, showing his great and holy character as he does everything he does. Can we say the same? God has not changed. I don't know when the psalm was written, but there's been at least 2,500 years in between. For us, 2,500 years is huge. For eternal God, it's nothing. God has not changed. However, God has shown his strength even more. He's further displayed his holy nature. He's further shown his works of wonders. He's shown his strength to the nations. He's revealed that he redeems his people. Because in those intervening years from when this psalm was written till now, we have the cross of Jesus Christ. A holy God has conquered sin and death by sacrificing his own son. And through that work, he redeems his people. We know how he's expanded his redemption to the nations. Look at us. We are the nations. He has shown his power by raising Jesus from the dead, victorious over sin and death. The character of God has not changed in the past 2,500 years. All that's occurred during that time is he's further displayed who he is. Friends, place this display of God's character up against any doubts a crisis might cause in your life. Any doubts that the emotions that are generated from the crisis might cause. Your crisis cannot change God's character. Think about his character. He is the God who offers salvation to anyone who trusts in Jesus. We are redeemed by his faith in Jesus Christ. No crisis can take that from us. All of us have heard that over and over and over. If we've trusted in Christ, we're living that. We know the character of God. I remember God's character. That comes as I think about God. It causes me to progress here in this intellectual reset. And then we complete our intellectual reset when I remember God's past deliverance. I remember his past deliverance. 
It's helpful to get specific in our thoughts about what God has done in the past. So let's look at the final verses here of the psalm. The waters you, O God, the waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were in anguish. The deeps also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. Your arrows flashed here and there. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in as your way was in the sea, and your paths in the mighty waters, and your footprints may not be known. You led people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Thinking about what God has done in the past here, the psalmist has moved to, to employ some beautiful poetic language to describe the, the crossing of the Red Sea. The Israelites were doomed before they even began. Think about it. They weren't even a nation. They were just a bunch of running away slaves trying to escape, fleeing as a band, a, a mighty multitude in number but not in strength. They were trapped. The mighty, strong Egyptian army was pursuing them, and they were pinned up against a sea of water. There was no hope of escape. They could anticipate either one, a slaughter, because all the swords were the ones coming at them, not in their hands. So either a slaughter or a brutal return to slavery. Those were the two options they were facing. until God intervened. God did the impossible. He, he separated the water so that there was dry path through the Red Sea and the people passed through in safety, led by Moses and Aaron, God's appointed leaders. Certainly this is a familiar story to us. Grace and Judy Jones, they taught this story a few weeks ago to the twos and three-year-olds. This is one of the first stories you learn in Sunday school. I'm sure it's familiar to all of us. But let's not let the familiarity of it lose the impact. God rescued his people in an impossible way. God is so much greater than anything or anyone he might be compared to. That is the point our psalmist is making. As I read these verses here, that's the point. Now you may have wondered a little bit as I read 17 and 18 because those verses speak of a thunderstorm and an earthquake. Exodus doesn't record anything like that happening when they cross the Red Sea. Did the psalmist get confused? No, I suspect he learned this story just as young as we did. Maybe younger, I don't know. I'm sure he knew it for a long, long time. He didn't get confused. How many times, though, in Israel's history do we record Israel succumbing to Baal worship? Over and over and over, Israel worshipped Baal, the Canaanite god Baal, thinking Baal could, can, could deliver them from something be, when Yahweh was silent. They thought the true God was not going to deliver them, so they turned to someone else. Well, Baal was a storm god. The, the point that the psalmist is making here is he is rolling in this remembrance of, of God's delivery to the nation from Egypt. He's rolling in that, you know, God is so much greater than the storm god Baal. God can do the impossible. 
Why would they turn to a false god when the true god has shown himself to be so much more powerful? The alleged powers of Baal are dwarfed when you compare that to the displayed powers of Yahweh. Now, I hope the implication hits us. We're not prone to bow down to Baal worship. At least, not that I'm aware of. I haven't seen any of you worshiping Baal lately. But we are prone to walk away from God when our emotions take over. We're prone to look for other solutions, simply then remembering God has delivered his people in the past. He will do so again. Rather than depend on God, we turn to things like psychology that has some Christianity mixed into it because they observe human behavior and get some things right because God's made humanity to work in a certain way. But it's based on a secular foundation that's totally wrong. We, we turn to self-help. We turn to easy, popular Christianity, you know, the kind that we find on so many shelves in so-called Christian bookstores. We don't want to wait for God to end his silence. So we do something. We want an answer that will meet our timetable, that will serve our purposes. Look at verse 19. Your, at the end, the very last phrase, your God, footprints may not be known. You led your people by the hand of Moses and Aaron. The people never saw God. God was clearly present with his people, but God went unseen. The, the results of his presence were, presence were seen. The, the water parted, the people walked through on dry land, but God was not seen. Instead, it was God's servants who were visible. The, the feeble, weak, humble Moses and Aaron were the people that God's people had to follow. And as the people followed God's servants, God delivered the nation. Now, I don't want to chase a rabbit here this morning, but note, God tends to do much of his great saving work through people. Be one of those people. Be one who leads others to follow God. The psalm abruptly ends at this point. It just stops. God, though invisible, delivered his people with his power. Nothing more needs to be said. The intellectual reset is complete. The light bulb is clicked on for the psalmist. God is still God. That simple truth has taken hold in his mind and it has changed everything even though nothing has changed. The psalmist has a new outlook. God is still God. I remember God's past deliverance. Whether we see God's actions or not, God is still God. I mentioned Grace's cancer in 2013 at the outset. The week she was diagnosed was one of the few times that I've deviated from my planned sermon schedule. I create a sermon schedule, and part of my nature is I just stick to it. Holidays get in the way occasionally, but, but I tried to plan that distraction. 
Well, that time, we were in the middle of a series through the Gospel of John at the time, and I deviated. I went to Romans chapter 5 that, that week to preach a sermon that I entitled, The Benefits of Trials. I did that because I needed a reset. My emotions were all over the place. My emotions over her being diagnosed were creating an incredible turbulence in my life. I needed the Word of God to reset my mind. So I just took you along with me for the ride that week. This morning we saw our psalmist undergo a very similar process. We watched him go through the emotional turbulence. God's ignoring me. And then he went through an emotional and an, an intellectual reset. God is still God. The lesson that we can take from his example is, is just this simple lesson. Clinging to God and faith can carry us through any crisis. Any. It doesn't matter what it is. Clinging to God and faith can carry us through any crisis. Have you learned this lesson? Are you still trying to grab other solutions? Because it seems as if God is silent. God is still God. He is not ignoring you. Have you learned to cling to God in faith when the crisis hits? Not if, but when. When the crisis hits. There will be emotional turbulence when the crisis hits. No doubt about it. Yet if your emotions are getting the better of you, it's not that life is too hard. It's not that your emotions are too strong. It's that you are not thinking enough about God. Maybe you know God too little. You need to know Him more. But it's hard to learn about God when you're in the middle of the emotions. You need to learn about God now. Learn about God so that when the emotions come, you can think more of Him. The God of the Bible will deliver His people. The cross of Jesus proves that beyond a shadow of doubt. The greatest act of deliverance possible, the display of strength that is above all. God's movements may be invisible. He may appear silent, but he is not inactive. God is still God. We can cling to him in faith. Clinging to God in faith can carry us through any crisis. Father, I pray that you would help us to learn this truth this morning. Father, so often our emotions get the, broke, the better of us because we are broken people. So even the emotions that you graciously gave us can lead us into brokenness, can lead us astray. Father, help us to cling to you. Help us to reset ourselves by thinking properly, thinking about you Understanding that emotions that lead us from you are wrong. They're simple lies. The truth is what your word tells us. And the truth is that we're in your story. You are bringing glory to your name. You're accomplishing your good purpose, displaying your strength to the worlds around us so that they may know Jesus Christ. Father, may we be men and women who lead others to follow you by pointing people to Christ.
May we point people to Christ in what we say, but even more in what we do, especially as we respond to the crisis that comes up in our lives, the trials that you graciously bring so that we can use them to further your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.